Well, our reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through to 23. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the manner of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, bishops of the Church of England, condemned by Queen Mary for their refusal to recant their biblical Christian faith. As they were tied to the stake to be burnt in front of Oxford University, Latimer is reported to have said to Ridley, play the man, Master Ridley, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Richard Wormbrandt, Romanian Christian and pastor, imprisoned on two occasions for denouncing communism as incompatible with Christianity, serving more than 13 years in prison, including three years in solitary confinement in an underground cell, no lights, no sound tortured both physically and psychologically. He later recounted having the soles of his feet beaten until the flesh was torn off and the next day beaten again to the bone. He wrote that there were not words to describe that pain, yet he maintained a hope and compassion even for those who tortured him by looking at men, not as they are, but as they will be. I could also see in our persecutors, he wrote, a future Apostle Paul, and the jailer in Philippi who became a convert. Elaine and Frank Rasmussen, members of my previous church, an elderly Christian couple, faithful over decades, raised their grandchild as their own. William was shot and killed by a security guard, Karen Brown, after he assaulted and robbed her in 2004. She was arrested, tried, and later acquitted for his murder. 
In an interview with the Sunday Telegraph, a newspaper in Sydney, it writes, Frank and Elaine Rasmussen, who shared their home with Mr Aquilina for eight years, said they had forgiven Ms Brown and even sent a touching sympathy card after her murder trial last month. We do wish you success in your life ahead, they wrote. You will always be in our hearts. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, who were comparing him somewhat unfavorably with those that Paul called the super apostles. He boasts, he says, I have worked much harder. I have been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. This same Apostle Paul wrote the passage that Anne read for us today. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in living in plenty or in want. Paul, Frank and Elaine, Latimer and Ridley, Richard Wormbrand, many in this congregation... Know that secret. The secret of being content in any and every situation. Do you want to know the secret? Well, Paul has told you the secret already. And we're going to spend some time unpacking that together as we look at what is our last sermon uh, in Philippians. The passage Previously, in the start of chapter 3, Paul writes this. He speaks of having, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, I want to draw your attention particularly to this word, righteousness. And we're going to spend some time unpacking what it actually means to have a righteousness from yourself. What does righteousness mean? Well, righteousness is a word that actually means to be rightly related. And when it actually means, what it means in scripture is to be rightly related to God. But you might be here this morning thinking, well, actually, I'm not a Christian, so I don't really care about righteousness at all. Righteousness is not something that even bothers me. So why would I want to be righteous? Paul can have his righteousness. You Christians can have your righteousness. But for me, I'm happy. Can I say 
that what works as a God in your life is what is that center of your life? What is it that gives you meaning and purpose and direction? Where do you get your happiness? Where do you draw your identity? When you describe yourself, what are the categories that you use? When you need to say that your life is worthwhile, where do you go for the evidence? And whether you have the God of the Bible, another God, or something as mundane as work, or family, or sport, those things are God. This fellow, David Wallace, I've quoted you this before, he's an, he's an atheist, and he writes that in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everyone worships. Everyone has that centre, that functional centre to their life that gives them meaning, that gives them purpose. And it doesn't need to be a religious thing. It doesn't need to be a God thing. It can be something that is entirely ordinary. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be a great thing. But it functions as your foundation for life. And as we think about that, that thing controls us. Augustine of Hippo, years and years and years ago, 300s, he says this, whether he will it or no, a man or a woman is necessarily a slave. You serve the thing by which you seek to be happy. He follows them whithersoever they lead and fears anyone who seems to have the power to rob him of them. Gods take all shapes and forms. Gods can be very mundane. Gods can be the God of the Bible. What we seek to be happy by is what we serve and what we fear. And these gods have rules. Whether these are explicit or implicit doesn't matter, but we know what it means to be rightly related to these gods. And the Apostle Paul had a picture of what it meant in his mind to be rightly related to God, and he lists it all off in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 of the letter to the Philippians. He goes through all the things that he thought made him right with God. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was what he called a Hebrew of Hebrews. He could tick the boxes. He goes on. He says, in regard to keeping the law, he was a Pharisee. He was a member of an ultra-Orthodox sect. In regard for zeal, he persecuted the church. And in regard for righteousness based on the law, he was a man who kept the rules perfectly. The Apostle Paul knew what rules he needed to keep. And as far as he was concerned, he was righteous. But if you think about your gods, if perhaps you have one that is different to the God of the Bible, they don't need to be religious. I've said that. 
It might be the God of popularity. What, what laws would the God of popularity have? You go to your popularity to shore up your sense of self. Well, the God of popularity tells you that if you have loads of friends and you're respected as being cool, you can tick the boxes. Okay, maybe it's the God of family. Maybe for the parents who are here, you know, it's a wonderful spouse. It's a happy marriage. It's being looked at by those around you. Wow. Tell you a joke. It's not a joke. It's actually real. Karen and I came in once and found some kids from another family playing the Munros. Isn't that nice? (laughs) Happy families. If this was my God, wow. These kids want to be part of my family. Wonderful spouse, happy marriage, happy, successful, and polite kids. You know, we can tick these boxes. We're successful parents. We've appeased the God of family. If this is maybe the boxes we're ticking, you can add to these. Maybe it's beauty. If your God is beauty, what is it? No visible flaws. Okay? And when you walk into the room, there is obvious impact. Everyone notices that you are there. Everyone's noticed that you are there. When this goes wrong, like it did at my year 12 formal, when two of the pretty girls of the class turned up in the same dress. The God of beauty was not happy that night. The God of intellect. For those who uh, have children, grandchildren, friends approaching year 12, just having done year 12, maybe university exams, maybe postgraduate studies, we all know what it is to serve this God, isn't it? And this God demands top grades, recognition, titles, degrees. And if we get those things and we're serving this God, it's great. But if you get your sace back and you didn't get the mark... If you get knocked back out of the course that you wanted to get into, we know what it is both to serve and to fail these gods. To succeed brings pride. To fail brings shame and grief. The other day I was in the pool. I swim. It's something that holds my dysfunctional spine together. And there was a girl in the lane next to me who was obviously an elite athlete. She was there with her training partner. They had triathlon caps on, so I assume that that's what they are. And about two-thirds of the way through her training session, this girl bursts into inconsolable sobbing. It's not something that normally happens in the swimming pool. This girl is almost drowning in her tears, not in the pool. And her training partner is trying to console her with the fact that, yes, you got hit by the bus. Yes, it's six weeks out of your training program, but it'll be okay. But she could not face the fact that she was no longer as strong and as fit and as fast as she was. Can I say? She left me for dead. But in her mind... She was failing the God of athletic performance. And her grief was inconsolable. What is your God? What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be right in relationship with your God? Paul, the Apostle Paul, had religious performance. He'd developed an image of what God 
he thought was God was like, and he developed all the rules that he thought serving God meant to be right relationship with him. And at the end of the day, in verses 7 and 8, what does he say? Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider them to be garbage. And you remember, garbage is a polite euphemism for what is on that shovel. That is what Paul recognises, that all these boxes that he ticked, all these things to get right with this God is a pile of manure. It can never deliver. And so if a righteousness that comes from yourself is effectively a pile of manure, what is the other option? Well, Paul takes it to us in verses three, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. A righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This is a different righteousness. You can have your own built on ticking all those boxes, filling all those laws. Or you can have one that is a gift from God through faith in Christ. What Paul is using a shorthand there is saying that everything that Christ achieved, Christ's perfect life, Christ's sacrificial death where he died in our place, bearing our sins, Christ's victorious resurrection, those things, the victory that Christ won, is the basis of this righteousness. Everything else was garbage. Everything else was manure. But for Paul, he came to see that what Christ had done was the only sure foundation. And that is received not on the basis of us earning it, but on the basis of us trusting what God has given. That's the gospel. That's that righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And it's not just something, when we think about the gospel and this righteousness, it's not just about what happens when Christ comes back or we go to him. It's actually about every single day. And the passage that Anne read for us, where Paul talks about this contentment, he talks about these relationships, he talks about his ambition for the Philippians, he talks about money, all of those things are evidences of how this works out. So we want to unpack those things this morning. So the Apostle Paul, when he speaks to the Philippians and he's wrapping up this letter, do you hear how he speaks to them? He doesn't have what so many in our culture have. He doesn't have a utilitarian approach. Have you ever heard uh, people say, oh, you know, that friendship's just not working for me anymore? You heard that kind of thing. You know, she's not really, he's not really meeting my needs. I'm not really feeling like it's working. A lot of times relationships, friendships, marriage sometimes is even articulated, spoken of in a way that it's kind of a formal or informal, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. As long as we're both still happy, we're both still here. But once that breaks down, once my needs aren't being met, it's all over with. Walk away, start again, find someone new. I knew someone growing up 
whose mother would consistently say when a friend would let this person down, and friends always let us down, leave that person, walk away, find someone else. You don't need that. That attitude to relationships permeates so much of our culture. But how does Paul see it? Paul speaks not of friends, but he speaks of brothers and sisters. He speaks of relationships that are bound together because we have one father, because we have one elder brother. Our relationships with one another are not optional. We are family. We are family. And the amazing thing about how Paul relates to his brothers and sisters is that he does not need anything from them. Did you pick that up? They've sent him a gift. They've sent him a messenger, Epaphroditus, and they've sent him a gift. And he says, I didn't need this gift. He affirms and thanks them for it, but he doesn't need anything from them. Paul is not looking for his earthly relationships to meet his need because the vertical, what relationship is established by faith in Christ with God, that relationship dominates. So when Paul, you know, you've heard the tank, uh, the tank, you've heard the term, you love tank, you know, you need your love tank filled up so then you can love others. Paul's love tank is constantly filled up by God through faith in the Lord Jesus. He doesn't need the Philippians to make him feel good about himself. He doesn't need the Philippians to be constantly building up and affirming. He appreciates their encouragement. But it's not the be-all and end-all for him. And that lets him love and serve the Philippians and others in the way that they need to be loved and served. Brothers and sisters, how does the foundation of the righteousness that we have in Christ overflow in our relationships with one another? Do we so live in that relationship with God that it then overflows and blesses others? Or maybe someone's kinked the hose here. Maybe we're spending more time doing lots of other things than in the word and in prayer and in worship and in praise and fellowship, things that feed that relationship. And we're looking to draw on this horizontal from our brothers and sisters, from our friends, to fill that need. The danger there is those relationships become our gods. Let's keep moving. Paul speaks of his circumstances. Now, as I thought about this, I think we have a lot in common uh, with lizards when it comes to our circumstances. What do lizards do when they want to warm up? They go and stand in the sun, don't they? Okay, and if it's a cold, miserable day, they're cold and miserable, yes? I think we're like this with our circumstances. Things are going well, like cares in the cricket, you know? The six goes over the boundary. Yes! The stumps get annihilated. No! 
when you see that it's Sean Tate, and Sean Tate's actually a South Australian, it makes it even worse, doesn't it? He should have been playing for us. We go up. The boss says, well done, great job. We go down. The house is carnage. The kids are badly behaved. You get that F on that thing that you thought was so good. We go up, we go down, we go all over the place in our circumstances. We get tossed around by all the storms of life. But the Apostle Paul says, whatever the circumstances, whatever I got on the test, whatever the house looks like, however many rats there are in my jail cell, I am content. Paul has an anchor for his soul that is in the perfect work of Christ. So Paul is in prison as he writes to the Philippians. Up until their gift arrived, we assume that he was a bit short on cash. There wasn't a prison refractory. There was no canteen. You relied on people to feed you while you were in prison. Paul seems to be going a bit short, but he says, whether I'm in need or plenty, it actually doesn't matter. God has allowed me to be content in any circumstance because nothing can take away the foundation he has given me in Christ. Nothing can make him doubt God's love for him. Romans 8 is a beautiful unpacking of this where Paul says, neither height nor depth, angel nor demon, and he summarizes all these things and he says, or anything else in all creation can get between us and the love of God for us in Christ. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If he gave us Jesus, how can we doubt his love? There are those out there who see our prosperity, our well-being, our health, our bank balance as a sign of God's blessing for us. And they are things that God blesses us with. But their lack does not mean that God is cursing us. They preach a gospel that promises all these things. And if that was the gospel, the Apostle Paul would be under a curse. The Lord Jesus would have been under a curse. 11 out of 12 disciples who are martyred for their faith, are they living happy, healthy, wealthy lives? No. But what they have, the riches that they have in Christ, can never be taken away. So brothers and sisters, when we are facing the storms of life, go back to the perfect righteousness that is a gift from God. Let's keep going. Paul speaks of his ambition for them. It's only there in a little bit, but you see it in other parts in uh, the letter to the Philippians. What Paul wants above all things is not his agendas to be fulfilled, but God's purposes to be fulfilled. So what does he want in their giving? He doesn't want his budget to be met. He wants them to be giving because as they give, they are being obedient to God. As they give, they are putting God before all other things. That's what he wants. Paul's agenda is God's agenda. 
And we see it here in Philippians when Paul in chapter one speaks of how the gospel is being preached out of false motives to make his life hard. And he says, well, it doesn't really matter because the gospel is being preached. Paul's agenda is God's agenda. And what we see is it's not just that the gospel is being preached, but here that people are growing in their faith. How does the gospel inform that? The gospel gives us God's purposes in detail. He tells us in the gospel what it is that is truly going to last where it is that true blessing and hope and future can be found. And so as we go deeper into what he has given us, so surely that will overflow to others. J.C. Ryle said, a truly converted man or woman will not want to go to heaven by themselves. If you... Dwell deeply in what God has given you. How would you not want to share it with others? What God wants is what Paul wants. And what God wants should be what we want. Lastly, Paul speaks of money. It's the thing that permeates this. It's all the passage is all about a gift that the Philippian church has sent Paul. And Paul basically saying, thanks, really appreciate it didn't really need it. It's kind of a funny kind of exchange as you read it through. But what you see is Paul's attitude. Money is a tool as far as Paul is concerned. It is nothing more than a tool and it's a tool to be used in God's purposes. It's a tool to be used for God's ends. And what we do with money, Paul sees is something that reflects what's actually happening in our heart. Paul doesn't crave it. He uses it. He doesn't look to his bank balance for his security. Paul trusts in the one who stands behind everything. And so he rejoices when the Philippians give it away. People often ask parents what they want for their kids. And often parents will say something like, I want my kids to be happy. I want my kids to be comfortable. What Paul would say is ultimately those things are focusing on what is second best. Nothing wrong with being happy, nothing wrong with being comfortable. But Paul here, with his attitude to money and everything, actually shows us that what is most important is that our children, that we ourselves, that those around us come to know that a righteousness for themselves, from themselves, will not stack up, but God has freely given it to them in Christ. The Lord Jesus said, It's better to give than to receive. And Paul here demonstrates that as he speaks of the blessing that will come to the Philippians in response to their generosity. Now, what he's not saying 
is if you give God 10, he'll give you 100. There's a group of people out there that are prosperity gospel preachers and they talk about the law of sowing and reaping. Can I say that is not Christianity? God has given us everything in Christ. God will provide for our needs, but we confuse so often our needs and our wants. How can we say my needs include a million dollar house? Overseas holidays, where Christians in Cambodia say, my needs is this, this day's dinner. Christians in the Sudan say, my needs is that I don't watch my children starve in front of me. I don't watch a militia come down and kill. We see our needs in such a comfortable Western way. And those who preach that prosperity gospel, they do it in such a way that is abhorrent to the Bible, to the heart of the Lord Jesus. God has blessed us. Not with all the material stuff, that's a great thing, but he has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. So as we wrap up, the Apostle Paul tells us one thing he does, forgetting what's behind, straining towards what's ahead, he presses on towards the goal to win the prize, sounds like a lot of our effort, for which God has called me heavenward. God's given it to him. God's called him for it. God's elected him. And now he just strives to be what God has made him to be. Brothers and sisters, this year, this year, will you continue to grow up in grace? And it's, it's something that we do in response to his grace. But it's not something that happens automatically. It's kind of like walking wrong way up an escalator. If you think, oh, well, actually, I've got other priorities this year. I'm not going to major on church and Bible study and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to focus on my studies. I'm going to focus on my garden. I'm going to focus on taking a nice holiday in the middle. Brothers and sisters, we cannot stand still. You'll go backwards. That's called indwelling sin. That remains, that will take us away, give us this spiritual amnesia. We need to be continually pressing on, pressing into, pressing up into the grace of God. And it's all the basics. It's time regularly, every day if we can, in God's word. It's time in fellowship with him in prayer. It's time fellowship with one another. And here at Trinity Hills, very appropriate at the start of 2016, we have two communities. We have big community, Sunday at 9, Sunday at 11, and then we have all our growth groups. And those growth groups, Anne's going to come up in a second and just speak about them. But they are absolutely critical, I believe, as we share relationships around God's word with one another to together grow more and more in the knowledge and love and service of God. Growth groups are key. So hopefully I've given you a 33-minute 
I can tell because that's what the clock says, announcement about why you need to be in a growth group. Now, hopefully there's more to it than that. But as Paul continues, he wraps up in verse 9. And this, I think, is almost, it could be a, a memory verse for growth groups. Whatever you have learned or received or heard or from me or seen in me, put it into practice. It is that together life. Put it into practice. And his promise is that the God of peace will be with you. I'm going to pray and then Anne's going to come up briefly and just speak to you a little bit about our growth groups. Father, we do thank you. We thank you that we have a righteousness, a righteousness that comes by faith, a righteousness that is a gift through the perfect work of Christ. Lord, let that shape our lives. Let us shape how it is that we look at relationships with one another. Let it shape how we think about our priorities and our ambitions. Father, in the ups and downs of our life, we pray that it will be the anchor of our soul. Father, let it affect the way that we conduct our lives, particularly, Father, the way that we use the finances that you have entrusted us with. Lord, let us grow on, grow up, press in, that we might know you better love you more, and reflect more and more the character of the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.